We come now this morning to Zechariah chapter 4, the fifth vision. This is God's word. Zechariah wrote, Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who was roused from his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand of all gold with its bowl on top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Then I answered and said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth a top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of Yahweh, which roam to and fro throughout the earth. And I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he spoke to me, saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Amen. This is God's word. And we are going to pause and pray to ask Uh, that God would help us by his spirit to not only understand, but that this word would be applied to us. Let's pray. Oh God, you know this is one of those passages that we have questions about. We have questions as to what these lampstands, just like Zechariah, the olive trees, the seven eyes. And we come to you like little children saying, please teach us. And not only explain these things to us, but that you would help us to know you. And that we would be encouraged in the work that you have for us here and now where we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Zechariah has fainted, apparently. In chapter 4, verse 1, the angel that had served as his guide through these visions in the night, has to come and kind of grab him by the shoulder and stir him a little bit. Because he was a man who was needed to be roused as if from sleep. Uh, was Zachariah dozing off during these visions? I seriously doubt it. I don't think, given the previous vision, was a vision of the very throne room of God with the angel of the Lord, none other than Christ there, Satan, Joshua the high priest, and this magnificent scene that ends with God's promise that he will remove the 
sin of Israel in a day and that he will usher in a time of peace in which Jerusalem will be led by the Messiah and every person in the kingdom will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and his fig tree. And and again, that's a scene of peace and of, of joy and of rest, of sitting finally without any fear of enemies or or of darkness, or of evil, or of conflict, or disease. In view of that scene of the throne room of God and the promises about this glorious, stunning future, Zechariah is so overcome with awe and with joy that it knocks him out. (laughs) He's a man who's brought to fainting because of wonder and awe. And we can sympathize, we can under, maybe not sympathize, but we can at least understand that if, if we were the one who were being given these direct visions of these glorious scenes, that our frail, weak humanity might just be overcome and we might just drop. Zechariah has been overwhelmed by the glory and the goodness of God and the promises of God about Israel and Judah's future. And now it comes to a Fifth vision in the night, the angel comes and gives to him a scene which has at its center a beautiful golden lampstand. Now, some of us might tend to think that's a little gaudy. We wouldn't have that type of thing in your house. And I have to confess, if I come into your house and I see a big lampstand gold, with, I'm going to think, ooh, I don't know about this decorating scheme. Um, uh, even even my most devout Italian friends who have lots of like lots of gold colored they they wouldn't have a massive gold lampstand in the middle of their living room right so this is different and uh, this has to do with the temple worship in part we understand that in the holy holy place there was a, a, a beautiful golden lampstand but this is a little bit different this lampstand. There's a golden lampstand, and it has these spouts with uh, oil, olive oil, pure olive oil that are continuous light. And on either side of this ornate and large lampstand are two olive trees and branches that are laden with olives. Interesting scene. What does this have to do with? What's, what, what's, how are we to understand this lamp with its beautiful, constant light. Well, we want to start there this morning because that's the key to understanding the passage. I just want to take a few moments to think with you about the significance of this lampstand full of this oil that has a a beautiful light. In Genesis 1-3, you know, when God created the heavens and the earth, God at one point said, let there be light. God, in fact, we learn in Christ, John the Apostle says, in him is light and and in him there is no darkness at all. Isaiah chapter 60, the God who created light declared that Israel would be a light to the world. This, these beautiful words, they'll, they'll be familiar to you in Isaiah 60, verse 1 and th- through 3. God said to Israel of old through Isaiah, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord, or Yahweh, has risen upon you. 
Behold, darkness will cover the earth and dense gloom the peoples, but Yahweh will rise upon you. His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. If you listen to Handel's Messiah this Christmas season, you'll hear those words sung. God was saying that his son, the Messiah, is the glory, is the light, but that the son would come to Israel, the Messiah to Israel, that Israel itself will one day be a light to the nations. Israel of old was to be a light to the nations living in darkness and depravity, and Israel in the God's glorious future will be a light to the nations because the Messiah, her king, the descendant of David, will dwell personally among them, and the nations will stream to Israel and to Jerusalem to worship the Lord and to worship Christ. Israel was to be a light and will be a light to the world. And of course, as we come to the New Testament and to the church comprised of Gentile and Jew, we are the church in this present time. Jesus said to his people in Matthew chapter 5, to his disciples, you are the light of the world in the Sermon on the Mount. A city on a, set on a hill cannot be hidden. God's people, Christ's people, are to be like a light in the darkness. The church in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 and following is described in this way as, as comprised of men and women who have been qualified by God the Father to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. God is the one, according to Paul in Colossians 1.13, who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his Son in love. In Ephesians 5, verse 8, Paul describes the church as this, in this way. You were formerly darkness. It doesn't mean that you were just you know, formerly in a place where you didn't have light bulbs or candles. This is talking about a spiritual condition. That you and I, apart from Christ, were dead, lost in darkness, without hope. That's what our past is, all of us, before Christ. And he says, you were formerly darkness to the church, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The church, like Israel, is to be a light to the nations, a light to the peoples, We are children of the light. We have the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We preach Christ, who is the glory of God. We preach the gospel, which is the good news, which brings light into the darkness. Look, get detailed right now thinking about it. We're not just talking about conceptual darkness. We're talking about wickedness and depravity and sin and murder and envy and lust and all the kinds of things that fill our news and our our, our news streams and papers and all those accounts. It's all around us. It's in our families. As you go to meet with your family this Thanksgiving, you'll see the darkness. I'm not saying that there's maybe one particular family member, but the reality that even as much as we love one another, there's still sin there. There's still jealousy and all the kinds of things that are going on. We live in a dark, dark world full of sin. And it is ruled over by one who is the prince of darkness, as it were. His name is Satan. And he's not a myth. If you doubt the reality of Satan and demons, just look at the wars going on in the world. Try to explain a shooting that just happened up in Lewiston, Maine. Satanic 
demonic. What happened, Hamas going into southern Israel and what they did, that's demonic. This is a dark world. It is not a wonderful world after all, as that old song says. What a wonderful world. It is not a wonderful world. It is a dark, twisted, corrupt, perverse, and crooked world. And we, by God's grace, not by nature of who we are, because by nature we're part of the darkness and contribute to the darkness, and we know that in our sin we all have. But by God's grace, confessing our sin and our darkness, we come into the light and we place our faith in Christ, not only individually then, but together as Christ's people, as the church, we become the light of God's grace and the gospel in this present dark generation. And so, the people of old and the people of now, people of God, are meant to be light. And the question in Zechariah 4 is, how can this light possibly shine in such oppressive darkness? How can it shine? And look, the answer, you can't just, you can't go there so quickly. Oh, yeah, it's easy. No, it's not easy. The work that Zerubbabel and Joshua were about, that Zechariah and Haggai were encouraging the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the temple represented the reestablishment of the worship of God, of the people of God. In other words, it was like the lamp had gone out, and the building of the temple was, was like the lamp being refashioned, refueled, relit. And right now, it's, it's, it's out. There's a tiny little remnant that's returned a few, like 50,000 or so, roughly. They're surrounded by people who, who worship other gods. The worship of God is not exactly popular at the present time. It's among the peoples of the world in Zechariah 4, there are very, very few who know God and worship him rightly. And they are opposed from within and without. The, even within, the, the, for the people that were there, for those who returned, they were trying to rebuild the temple. They set the first foundation. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to go back to Ezra 3 and 4 is because you learned there some of the difficulties they faced. For example, think about it. They returned. They left, they left their homes in Babylon. It's not like they had tents in Babylon. They were there for 50 to 70 years. They had homes. They had businesses. They left it all behind. They basically went on a camping trip to, back to Israel. They arrived with virtually nothing. So they're trying to establish their own households. And then they're trying to, in addition to that, to get about the work of removing the rubble, setting the foundation stones. They do it. They, they begin the work. And under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, they at least reset the first massive foundation stones of the temple and the people come together and they rejoice about it they, they celebrate it but among the rejoicing do you know what else can be heard weeping weeping why because among the crowd that was there that day seeing the first foundation stones being laid were some old men who had seen Solomon's temple and its glory. And in comparison, when they saw the, the 
outline of the, just the foundation stones of the new temple, it, they realized, it dawned on them. There's no way they were going to restore the temple in the glory that it once had. We can relate to that a little bit. New England has a glorious, rich Christian heritage. Do you know that? You can see it practically in every town with a white steepled church. And in many of these churches, hard for us to believe, but there was once true, sound, rich, biblical gospel preaching here in New England. And now, where we are trying to be witnesses to Christ, you are sitting right now in the most secular zip code area of the United States. Did you know that? We're always in the running. I know it's always a competition. Who's the least church state, us or Vermont? Sometimes Maine gets in the mix too. That's where you are. Once the heritage of the richest theological tradition of the world was here in New England, and now we are the least churched, most secular. And there can be a tendency for those of us who are seeking to build Christ's church here and now to be about the work of serving the Lord, sharing the gospel, being a part of building his church. It can be, uh, it can be tempting for us to look back at our glorious future past that God gave and think, wow, this is, this is kind of discouraging. I guess things aren't going to be like they, they once were. So they were discouraged, possibly from within. They were discouraged with thoughts of the past. They were discouraged from enemies who were attacking them and undermining them. Again, I encourage you to go back to Ezra chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and read about that. They were assaulted on every side, undermined, opposed. Is that the case today in the church? I understand right now we have a measure of peace, but we understand that we live in a time and day and age in which we are expecting not if persecution will come, but when. I've shared with you, I have a friend that I know well, whose name's James Coates, who spent 32 days in prison in maximum security in Canada because during COVID, he had the audacity of refusing to close down his church. Your opinion on COVID is beside the point. The point is that a government seriously put gates around a church and locked up its pastor, who's a very nice, peaceful guy, in a maximum security prison for obeying the word of God. And we are not ashamed here at the church to say that marriage is between one man and one woman. We are not ashamed to say that homosexuality is sin, lesbianism is sin, transgenderism is an abomination. And right there, if someone listens to the recording, you understand that certain places and certain authorities that we could be on their radar. Hello. We're there. We're not going to hide it. And we understand, like, if that was known by some of the people going by, they're not going to think our church is great. We are opposed. We live in a day and age. And by the way, we love sinners of all kinds. The point is, is that if you're a church that stands for biblical truth in our present culture, you're going to be hated by the culture that we're in. We want to be loving. We want to be kind. We want to be open arms to every kind of sinner who's interested in hearing about Jesus Christ. But because we follow Christ, we are unwanted in this world. So the work of God in that day in Zechariah 4 and the work of God in Christ in this day stands opposed and weak 
and we are weak. I, you know, when people ask me, how's your church? I, I should start saying, well, actually, we're very weak, very small. We don't have many abilities. We don't have many resources. And then just watch how the person's face reacts. Really? Ooh, wow. <laughs> that's not all our church is. But that's part of what we are. Not many of us. I mean, we're not a very big church. We don't have massive resources. God has been so good, faithful to us, but are we impressive in the eyes of the world? I had a friend this summer, we were pulling in, and as we were pulling in, he didn't mean to be unkind. He said, it looks like a storage station. (laughs) Gone is the glory of the white steeple. I mean, I like white steeples. I used to, I pastored in two churches with white steeples. My point is, brothers and sisters, is we are weak, we are small. I think one of my greatest qualifications, uh, one of the things that as a pastor is that I'm a bit of a failure. We have time to get into all this. I've been saying that to some of my pastor friends lately, and they, they kind of look at me like, you're a failure? Well, I'm, I mean, I'm, I don't mean like I'm disqualified. What I'm saying is in the eyes of the world, I've, I've failed on a number of fronts. To some of the people who love me, who maybe once upon a time thought there were great things in store for me. The failure, it sounds a lot, what I mean is in the spirit of the Apostle Paul, who said, I will gladly boast of my weakness, because when I am weak, I am strong. I am taking a moment, dear brothers and sisters, to tell you how weak, little you and I are, so that we can hear the text of Zechariah 4. But unless we are willing to see our weakness, unless we are willing to see the odds against us, we can't understand it. The odds are completely against a church being built here of all places. I don't mean like on this property, but I mean here in New Hampshire, of a a loving, biblical, fruitful church here in this kind of soil where we are an area where we've spawned more cults than just about any other part of the nation, where we have been ravaged by splits and divisions of all kinds, you mean that it's still possible to have a biblical, thriving, gospel-proclaiming church here? Yes. But your answer better not be yes, because... I just learned of a new program that came along, and if we follow it and we get our act together, maybe we can turn things around. I, for one, embrace the reality that we are in the most impossible place, perhaps, in the United States. The odds are completely against us. Men and women are dead, far from God. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to convince them. The trends are all against us. All these things, I want to embrace them, and I want to say, yes, we are very weak because then that gives an opportunity for God to glorify himself. So here's the question of Zechariah 4. How? How? How can God bring his work about in the face of such overwhelming odds? How can we hope to build the church? Of course, Christ said he would build his church, but we are his hands. We are his feet. How can we do this work here? How could Zerubbabel and Joshua 
possibly hope to finish the completion of the temple when only the first foundation level, you have a bunch of the older folks weeping and crying, you have enemies uh, coming against them, and even the king shuts them down so that the work is halted for more than 15 years. How are God's promises going to come to pass? That's what this question, the question in this text answers. This vision answers. God gives a vision to Zechariah to show him and us how it is that God will bring about his work, even in the face of the most discouraging and overwhelming odds. First, God's work is done by his spirit. God's work is done by his spirit. Did you know, would you, I wonder if we'd asked you this morning, where is that verse? Not by my, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. If I had asked you before this reading, where is that passage? I wonder what we would have thought. Maybe it's in the New Testament. Maybe it's in the Psalms. No, it's here in Zechariah 4. Why is God saying that? God is saying that Israel and the people of God are going to shine brightly. This lamp is going to burn brightly for all the world to see. Not ultimately by the might of a man, not by the power of a man's influence, but by my spirit, God says. God's work is done by his spirit. The spirit of God is the only hope for this church continuing to be built, period. That's it. Now, yes, we'll see in a moment. He uses us. We can't just sit around and say, what are you doing? I'm waiting for the Spirit to do something. No, that's not what we mean. But what we mean is the power, the influence, the ability to bring it about is ultimately the Spirit of God. And the moment we forget that, brothers and sisters in Christ, we're dead in the water. We have no hope of the church being built, of the work of God advancing, except by the presence and the ministry of the mighty Spirit of God. It's by the Spirit of God that the temple would be rebuilt. In the face of all opposition, verse 7, God is taunting there, O great mountain. What's the great mountain? A mountain is symbolic of of a kingdom, of a power. And it was the powers that be that had commanded the work of the temple to stop. And God is taunting those great powers and those uh, authorities. And he's saying, what are you? I'm I'm sorry. What do you have to say about this? God had determined he wanted to build his temple and he's mocking the powers of the world, all dominions, all authorities. And he's saying, what are you? What are you? You're nothing. And God says, before Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel is the Davidic leader of the people. That, in other words, these other kingdoms, other powers will become like a plane, ultimately before Jesus Christ. And he will bring forth the top stone. That is the finishing stone on the temple that they were building with shouts of grace, grace to it. That would be when the temple was completed, there was to be a great assembly and the people would be in joy praising God and saying grace, grace to it, meaning it's a way of of rejoicing that God was finishing and putting the final capstone on the temple. 
God says, paraphrase, I don't care what earthly power, what earthly authority, what man, woman, nation, tribe, town, authority, influence says my work won't go forward. Not by might, but by not by power, but my my spirit, the Lord says, I will do what I want. And we need to reckon with that. Some of us have a have an idea of the Holy Spirit only being our comforter. He is our comforter. But sometimes some of us, we kind of drift over thinking to the idea that the, the, comf- that the Spirit is kind of, you know, I don't know, um, soft and weak and, you know, comforting, mushy kind of like, you know? Remember, when you're talking about the Spirit of God, you're talking about the breath of God, the mighty power of God, We should fear and tremble before the Spirit of God who is among us. He's among us right now. He indwells every believer. And he is the power of God. And we need to remember him and give him the honor that he is so due. In summary, the Holy Spirit of God has never come to a situation a time. We're, we're very, we think these days, oh, in these modern times with technology and secularization, I don't really know if the gospel works anymore. You know, in these modern times, I, there's all kinds of articles being written about how religion is on the decline, and, and it's almost as though God has a problem these days. He, the, he doesn't sell very well anymore. Dear ones, the Holy Spirit has never come to a situation, a tribe, a language, a culture, a time where he looks at and says, well, wow, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't don't know how I'm going to advance the will of God in this situation. Not possible. For he is the almighty Spirit of God. Praise God, his work is done by his Spirit. Secondly, God's work is done by his weak devoted servants. God's work is done by his weak, devoted servants. Remember, we're asking the question, how is it that these marvelous promises that God gave to Israel and Judah will be brought about ultimately in the last days? But with that, how is it that God's work advances in any time and place, like the work here, the gospel work that we have, in the face of such overwhelming opposition in the face of hell, in the face of Satan, in the face of unbelief and wicked men. How? By his spirit, and secondly, by weak, devoted servants. You see this in verse 9. God says in verse 9, the hands of Zerubbabel will have laid the foundation of this house, house, and his hands will finish it. God uses his spirit, but as his instruments, he uses his weak devoted servants. Zerubbabel is just a man, and he's in the line of David. And let me ask you this, how has the line of David done as far as serving Israel and Judah, as far as the kingly? I mean, you read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and you just see one failure of a king after another, one after another, one after another, to the point where you're reading through First and Second Kings, you're like, oh, Second Kings, here we go again. Zerubbabel is just another weak man, like David, And as for Joshua, he's not mentioned here, but remember the Joshua, the high priest, back in chapter 3, Joshua, the high priest, was pictured 
as standing before the throne of God covered in filthy garments representing sin. Zerubbabel, the leader of Israel at this time, Joshua the high priest, are just weak, sinful men in and of themselves. Now, we need to, we need to consider that. We are so prone as Christians, especially in this day and age, to look to men to do what only God can do. And look, the church and every institution needs skilled leaders. And we rightly read biographies and we esteem highly some of the men that God has used powerfully in in the history of his church. And there are men that God has gifted uniquely and we recognize that and we thank God for it. But men are just men and women are just women. And in and of ourselves, we don't have the kind of power to bring these things about. But the church in this region, I'll say, because I'm not used to the rest of parts of the country, but I'll just say here, we have gone through phase after phase after phase of looking for the mini Messiah of a leader who will come and will bring about whatever it is we're hoping will be brought about. We need to remember that men are just weak. And that is by God's design. That is by God's design. God's work is done by his weak servants. But they are also devoted. The one thing that characterized Zerubbabel and Joshua and Zechariah and Haggai was these men, even though they were sinful, even though they were weak, they were devoted to the Lord. These men had left Babylon. They had left everything they had and they were giving themselves to the work at a time when it was not popular. Zerubbabel, the house of David, had lost all of its glory. He's a a joke in the eyes of many. Joshua, the high priest, what kind of high priest are you if you don't even have a temple where you can offer sacrifices? These are weak men, but they were devoted. They gave themselves to leading the people of God at that time. Christ has said he will build his church. He said to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. We cling to that promise. Honestly, that's the only thing that keeps me sane sometimes as a pastor in New England over 20 years now. I just, I see so many discouraging things. Churches dying, churches falling apart, apostasy, false teaching, on and on. I see my own weaknesses. I see my own shortcomings and that's discouraging. And I take heart that this isn't our idea at the end of the day, it's Christ's. I will build my church, Christ said. But Christ said he will use men and women like you and me. And we are weak. And that is good. And it is good for us to embrace our weakness, like the Apostle Paul, who said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul said, God had told him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, Paul said, therefore, I will rather boast in my weakness. Paul was a failure too, in the eyes of the world. I will boast in my weakness, he said, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions and hardships. 
for the sake of Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong. God's work is done by his spirit. Secondly, God's work is done by his weak, devoted servants. God would finish the temple, and he did, through the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest. And we need to remember by these men, the example of these men, that we need to give ourselves to serving the Lord in every aspect of our lives. You have a family, you're to serve the Lord there. You have an occupation, you are to serve the Lord there. And you have his church and you are to serve the Lord there. You are bought with a price. You are Christ's slave, his servant. You are commissioned to be about the business of seeing that the kingdom of Christ is built up. Thirdly and finally this morning, God's work is supplied by Jesus, our priest and king. God's work is supplied for by Jesus, our priest and king. In Zechariah chapter 4, the, Zechariah has some questions, and that ought to be an encouragement to you. <laughs> if, if Zechariah is a prophet, a godly man, he, he is Hebrew, knows Hebrew, um, he knows he's a priest, so he understands all the imagery of the temple. If he has a question about what he's seeing, that ought to be comforting to us to say, okay, if he has a question, then, um, then there's something to ask here. And he's wondering. He, he's, these things are familiar to him. A lampstand is familiar to him. The idea of light representing the holiness and the witness of the people of God to the glory of God. The worship of God, that's familiar to him. He, he's familiar with olive trees. They're all around. He knows that only olives are to be beaten the highest quality into a pure oil, and that's the oil to be used for the lamp. He, that's familiar to him, but he has some questions. And so, and actually the angel has some questions for him. He, the angel says in verse 5 to Zechariah, do you not know what these are? And Zechariah says, no, my Lord. So he confesses his ignorance. And then down in verse 11, I skipped verse 10, I'm sorry. Briefly, because of time, the seven eyes are clearly told there, the, the eyes of the Lord. In other words, the, the omniscience of God or the spirit of the Lord that are going to see to it that Zerubbabel finishes this work. This plumb line, all this imagery of Zerubbabel being the lead builder on the temple project. And that God himself will be glad when he sees the work done. But Zechariah, back to verse 11, has questions about the two olive trees. He asked the question once, and it's interesting, the angel doesn't answer. And so Zechariah looks a little closer at the vision, and then he, he refines his question in verse 12. He doesn't ask again, what are the two olive trees? He narrows it down to, what are the two olive branches, which are beside the golden pipes? So you have this idea of these two olive branches laden with fruit, with olives, that are with the oil going into these two golden pipes, which in turn go into the lamp, fueling the, the bowl, fueling the lamps, giving a continual supply. And the angel says 
Verse 13, Zechariah, do you not know what these are? And he says, no, my Lord. And verse 14, the angel says, these are the two anointed ones who are standing before the Lord of all the earth. These are the two anointed ones. These two olive trees, these two olive branches are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of all the earth. Now here is admittedly a challenging interpretive task. And what we want to do briefly is first, in, when you come to a passage like this in your Bible, I want to encourage you first, notice what is clear, what is plain, what is basic. And what is clear and what is basic here is that whatever these two anointed ones or these two olive trees represent, clearly they represent something. What's emphasized is the task of oil from the olive tree branches being supplied for the lamp. Remember, we talked about the light and the significance of that. Israel is to be a light to the world. The church is to be a light to the nations. So the idea here is what keeps the lamp burning? Where does the oil come from to supply? Do you see that? You don't have to have a theological degree to see that. Very basic. You have a lamp, you have a bowl that needs oil, and you have lamps that need oil to be lit. And there are these two olive trees, these heavy branches, kind of like the pine trees we've seen this fall. I don't know if I've ever seen pine trees more heavily laden with pine cones than this year after all the rain this summer and putting pine pitch all over our cars. Well, this isn't pine pitch. That's a, that's a bad illustration. These are, these are olive trees, and they're supplying pure oil, olive oil, for the lamp. That is clear. That is plain. So the image, the vision, is telling Zechariah and the people how it is, empowered by the Spirit, carried out by the work of weak men, the work of God in building the temple, and ultimately the realization of the kingdom of God, the building up of the church, how it will be provided for. How will the lamp keep burning? How will the light shine? That's clear. What's less clear is who are these two anointed ones? And there may be some legitimate biblical difference on a, task, a passage like that. That's one of those passages where if someone has a different interpretation, uh, we, we are not going to come to blows over it. We are humbled by prophecy. But here, let's, let me just, in closing, help you if I can. The two anointed ones, there were two anointed offices, the office of priest and the office of king. And that has been the emphasis in this whole passage. The office of priest and king was emphasized in chapter 3, where Joshua the high priest is before the Lord. He is cleansed uh, of his sins. The angel of the Lord, who is none other than Christ, tells him, I'll remove the iniquity, your iniquity and the iniquity of the land in one day. We've already seen how in the turban that the priest had in chapter 3, it was more like the headpiece of a king. So you already had in chapter 3 an allusion to the two offices, Zerubbabel, King, Joshua, the high priest. That will become more clear. Turn over to chapter 6, 
Sometimes in order to interpret a passage, you just need to keep reading. Often, always the context. And in chapter 6, verse 12, in this vision, God will show to Zechariah that one day it will come about that the two offices, priest and king, will be brought together in one person. That was very unique. In Israel's history, by God's law, those two offices, king and priest, were separate. And remember, Uzziah was a king, and when he tried to go and offer up sacrifices to the Lord because he thought pretty... He thought pretty highly of himself. He thought, I ought to be priest too. He started, uh, he got leprosy and he had it to the end of his days because God judged him as a king for presuming to act like a priest. So these two offices were separated in Israel's history, but in the future, they will be united in one man. And he is called the branch. That's a messianic title. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is branch. That's Christ. He will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of Yahweh. That's a reference to the last days. Building the church and ultimately the temple and the millennial kingdom. Indeed, verse 13, it is he, this Messiah, who will build the temple of the Lord and he will bear the splendor of it and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Back to chapter 4, verse 14. These two anointed ones, these two offices, ultimately point to Christ. And it is interesting that the last time we saw someone standing by the Lord of the whole earth, it was the angel of Yahweh in chapter 3. The angel was standing there in the presence of Joshua and Satan. These are the anointed ones standing by the Lord of the whole earth. These may represent immediately Joshua, the high priest, Zerubbabel, the king. But ultimately, these two anointed ones are one. Two offices, one person, Jesus Christ. And that's why I said this third point the third teaching and the third answer to how is it that God's work will be carried on in the face of such overwhelming opposition by his spirit, by his weak, devoted servants, and by the continual supply of Jesus Christ. Christ is pictured here like olive trees laden with olives with a continual, abundant, unending supply so that the flame of the lamp of God's people and God's worship will never go out. What did Jesus say to his disciples in John 15? He used different imagery, not the olive tree, but the vine. And he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And we love that passage from Philippians. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God's work is done by God's spirit. 
We dare not forget the Holy Spirit. May God cause the Spirit of God to be honored and revered and acknowledged in this church. And I say that because some of us, we just, we don't think much about the Holy Spirit. We need to repent. That's not charismatic or Pentecostal. That's biblical. Charismatic Pentecostal is not biblical. Holy Spirit, honoring him, recognizing his role, that's biblical. We make sure that we are his devoted servants. We don't have to worry about being weak. That's, that's a given. We just have to be his devoted servants. And his work is not going to advance by us sitting around and saying things. Well, Christ said he built his church. That's not what Paul did. Christ said he built his church, so I guess I don't have to do anything. No, he labored and gave himself to the work. We give ourselves to the work. And thirdly and finally, through it all, even at especially our exhaustion, and when, as the hymn says, when we've reached the end of our hoarded resources, when our strength is gone ere the day is half done. Our Father's giving, I'm shortening the hymn, has only begun. His love knows no limit. It's a wonderful old hymn. I should have chose that as closing hymn. I didn't, and we don't have it in our hymnal. The idea is there that Christ will supply what we need. That's the idea. When we're at the end, when we don't have any other resources, we're in a good spot because the oil of the supply of the Son of God will never run out. Let's pray. So we worship you, God of power, by your Spirit. We worship you, Lord Jesus, as the supply for our every need for the work. And we only ask in closing that you would cause us and make us to be your devoted servants, faithfully serving you and serving as lights in the darkness in our homes, in our workplace, in our school, and in our church so that we together might be like a a light shining brightly. Oh God, cause us to shine for you. First for your glory and honor, for our joy, but also for the many, many people around us who are dwelling in darkness and don't even know there's any hope. Oh God, by your spirit and to the glory of your son, cause your light, your glory to burn brightly here. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.